And welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. So glad you could join us. He is Paul Latino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also interact with us on Twitter. Hashtag Giants Chat. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live is brought to you by Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. As we will get into a variety of topics over the next 60 minutes. We'll also get to your phone calls. We'll get to your tweets. Everybody's still reacting, of course, to Eli Manning's retirement. Paul and I were on Friday, and thanks again to Brandon Jacobs and David Tyree for coming in studio and reflecting on Eli Manning's career. That shows up on the archive, by the way. In it case is you missed it, uh, Jacobs and Tyree were really good. The first half hour of the show was devoted to their memories of Eli. It was great, and we went all over the place with both of them. So, once again, we thank both of them for stopping by, and as Paul mentioned, you could check out the archive on Giants.com. Now, speaking of Eli Manning, I know you and Jeff yesterday got into some memories, and see, to me, the focus always when you look back at Eli is the two Super Bowl runs, but I figure at this point, what have we not dissected? What has somebody not rewatched over the last two weeks that has to do with those two Super Bowl mm-hmm. runs? So I found it interesting, and I wrote about this in the latest cover three that's up on Giants.com. You look back at the regular season and Eli's performances and games that jump out. Now, I know you brought up the Patriots-Giants game, the 2011 regular season, another fourth quarter comeback, Eli hits Jake Ballard. In Foxborough. Correct, which brought back memories of Super Bowl Forty Two, and then little did we know, Later on in 2011, <laughs> Eli does it again to the New England Patriots. So I was perusing through regular season games, and you could pretty much pick whatever game you'd like. There is one game, though, that jumps out to me that I don't think gets enough notoriety, and the reason being is it came in a loss, Paul. To me, it's the shootout between Drew Brees and Eli Manning in, the in Super New Dome. Orleans. I mean, that game was unreal. Was it 13 touchdown passes between them? It was indeed. 2015 regular season, they combined for 13. Drew tied the NFL record with seven. seven. Eli had six. six. By the way, Eli had no interceptions in that game. Six touchdowns, no interceptions, over 300 yards. It wasn't a career high in terms of passing yards. It was for touchdowns. But the fact that they overcame, Paul, I went back and looked, three separate 14-point deficits mm-hmm. in that game. Mm-hmm. They Trailed 14-0, and then I think it was 28-14, 42-28, and then Eli and the Giants, one touchdown after another. If you remember, Dwayne Harris gets banged up in that game. He comes back. Catches two touchdowns. two touchdowns. Yeah. It was just a wild game, and the reason why I don't think a lot of people remember it is because the Giants ultimately lost in heartbreaking fashion. Kai Forbath. Game-winning field goal. I could tell based on your facial expression. After a face mask call. Yes, on special teams. But In the final seconds. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. But once again, if you remove the result, it, to me, is one of Eli Manning's most remarkable regular season performances. But nobody brings it up, once again, because I think perhaps the Giants didn't come out on the right end. But the fact that he went mano a mano with Drew Brees... And it was just such a wild game, Paul. Back and forth. Tremaine McBride has a pick six in that game Mm -hmm. after, let's face it, neither defense was that impressive. No, well. That's the game that I'm always going to remember. It was arena football. Correct, it was. (laughs) But I also thought it was somewhat of a microcosm of Eli's career because what is Eli known for? He's known for maybe things don't go according to plan in a game and he finds a way to fight back and just comes through with these magical plays. That, to me, had a little bit of everything. So if you were to ask me, regular season game, 2011 is the most memorable regular season as a whole. 
the 2015 game against the Saints in New Orleans, in his hometown, his backyard, mm-hmm. too. That, to me, is the one that jumps out to me. Well, that game is really reminiscent. If you remember, there was a very famous game back in 72 between the Colts and the Jets when Johnny Unitas and Joe Namath went absolutely bonkers. Each of them, I think, threw for over 400 yards. And it was just an absolute air raid fest on both sides of the ball. And that had always been uh, the landmark game for just flinging the ball up and down the field. And then Breeze and Eli went and did their own version of it in the Superdome. And the place was absolute bedlam that night. And I agree with you. That will be one of my great memories because the skill set under which Breeze and Manning showed that they could throw the ball, it was, look, don't get me wrong. There was no defense. I get it. Neither team played defense. But these guys were flinging it. And it it was fun. And I'm a guy who loves defense, by the way. I love defense. So for me to say that was fun is hard to do, but it was. And, you know, when you talk about a Hall of Fame career like Eli Manning had, you're going to have a whole shoebox full of games that you'll never forget. But I agree with you. That game doesn't get as much pop as it should. And Eli was just, again, in his own backyard. And in all honesty, I think as we were watching it, we were preparing for him to actually sneak out that victory until the face mask was called and then the Saints got the last second field goal. Well, you know where I thought you were going to go with that previous statement? Considering the Giants have had a very rough track record playing in New Orleans, I thought you were saying you were preparing for it to be another blowout because that's what I think a lot of people were anticipating. Remember, oh, no. they fell down 14 nothing. I'm talking about as the game progressed. As the game progressed, okay. I, gotcha. I fully expected that Eli would find a way to win it. Well, especially when they overcame one deficit after another. And it was also a game in which each team had a 50-plus yard passing touchdown. Mm-hmm. Breeze to Colston, Eli to Beckham. Yes. Once again, I brought up Dwayne Harris. It was just wild. Anything you expected out of a football game, that had it. And the fact that, to me, as I referenced earlier, comical that there was a defensive touchdown in that game. After 52-49, to 49, by the way, was the final score, yeah. you would have never expected there to be a defensive touchdown. And that defensive touchdown gave the Giants a seven-point lead. That made it 49-42. The Saints actually put together a lengthy drive to tie the game with just under a minute to go. I remember. And then on the ensuing kickoff, the penalty. Oh, and it ended on a booming field goal by Kai Forbath. If you are a boxing fan, and remember Eli, uh, Eli, Ali and Frazier, Thriller and Manila, that was football's version of the Thriller and Manila. Yeah, that's I mean, a good it parallel. was just unbelievable. So that's what I like to look back at because I think it's very easy to just reference the two postseason runs and the fact that you brought up the 2011 Giants-Patriots game, 2015 Giants-Saints. And we'll open up to you today. If you want to weigh in, if there's a regular season game in particular, because once again, I think it's well-documented what Eli and the Giants did in the postseason, but give me a game, give us a game that jumps out to you, regular season, where maybe not enough people talk about it, that is perhaps the the perfect description of what Eli's career was all about at 201-939-4513. Good stuff. I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that I would like people to remember uh, about Eli is not just all that stuff that we talk about on the field and even his leadership in the locker room, but I just uh, retweeted, I believe it was yesterday, the Tackle Kids Cancer uh, tweet. Uh, They were thanking Eli for all of his help and his marvelous efforts on behalf of those children at Hackensack University Medical Center. 
and and I I don't ever want that to go unnoticed. And I'm I'm really glad that in the highlight package the Giants put together of Eli's career, that there's a moment in there where Kurt Warner announces Larry Fitzgerald and Eli Manning as the co-winners of the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, because that had come about after Eli had begun a marvelous campaign for a tackle kids cancer and i'll tell you one thing i know eli too well there's no way in the world that he's going to turn his back on those people he's going to uh back those efforts uh for those children and those people uh for as long as he possibly can uh, that's not going to stop now that he's not playing football he is devoted and dedicated to those people and i've i've seen some of the outtakes of the video footage when he goes to the hospital, I'm telling you, Lance, it just it just breaks you breaks you up when you see how bad some of some of the uh, uh, the afflictions that these children are fighting, and then Eli comes into the room, and he's got a a clown's hat on, or he's got a gift to give them, and all of a sudden, the room just brightens up because they see Eli Manning's in the room. That's another part of him. That you know, you may get to see every once in a while in a clip or on the internet or a, a video or even a even a, a photo. I'm telling you, incredible dramatic effect he has had on so many young people and families who badly needed it. And that's something I think maybe we've ignored a little bit uh, during the course of the last week as we have honored Eli Manning's legacy. Well, he has never sought publicity. He from does that not. standpoint. So he does not. I, I think that's a big reason why maybe it's not discussed enough. His charity work. It actually reminded me of a story March I recently read. March of Dimes, read. too. Correct. The March and, of Dimes. And the, and the uh, dogs uh, for the blind as well, the seeing eye dogs. He does that one also. Tom Coughlin on his J Fund website, he wrote a story. It was his recollection of an event involving Eli Manning here at the Giants facility, Paul. Mm. And I, I just want to share it briefly, and maybe you recall this, but there was an event that Tom Coughlin was holding for the J Fund. I believe it was out in the field house where they give out ice cream to yes. the kids. I usually emcee that event. Okay, so there you go. So it was one year where Tom Coughlin was recollecting that Eli had to leave to go to another event and then he was going to come back to greet a special kid who was unfortunately getting chemo treatment. And mm -hmm. the parents were going to bring him later in the day to the facility. So the Giants were coordinating with Eli. He was going to go to his event, then he was going to come back. So Eli comes back. The kid did not make it yet to the Giants facility because I guess treatment was going a little bit mm -hmm. later. So Eli waited around and then ultimately left. So then he leaves maybe 10 minutes after he leaves the kid with his parents arrives, and the parent is, you know, holding the kid, assisting him into the facility. The Giants call Eli. He's 10 minutes from the facility. He's already on his way home. He turns around. He makes him come back to the facility and greets the kid whose favorite player was Eli Manning. And unfortunately, the child lost his life a few days later, and then the parent you know, wrote a wonderful letter to the Giants and Eli Manning that that was a day that they'll remember as well as the child will remember. So, you know, that story resonated with me as you were talking about all the charity work he did because, you know, those are the moments nobody talks about that. And probably nobody really knows about that unless somebody like Tom Coughlin or somebody associated with the Giants actually well, puts the pen to paper and recalls what exactly happened. 
you and I both know that Tom Coughlin had a a um, a um, what am I call? I don't know what I want to say. It's a rule, but every week the Giants would have an unfortunate family who had been afflicted by some serious health crisis come to practice. You you know this. You yeah, were there. You absolutely. saw it. Mm-hmm. And they would come out to practice. It would be once a week. They'd come out to practice with some of the Giants community relations people. They'd have them off to the side. Tom Coughlin would always make sure that he would greet that family. And then when the practice was over, all the players would always go over and greet that family as they left practice. And the last guy was always Eli Manning. Because Eli would then take pictures with that family, sign autographs for that family, and then he would go into the locker room, he'd change and come back out, and to the lunchroom, he would make sure that he stopped by with that family when they were having their lunch. Ice cream, cookies, whatever yep. it was, balloons, give, give an autographed football to the family. Eli was always the focal point of that day for that unfortunate family. And I can't even begin to count how many people were touched by that. That's part of what Eli Manning's about. I mean, there were even things that he did this season. Yeah, he loses his starting job, and kids are coming to the facility, and mm-hmm. you know he's going about his business like nothing, you know, changed. So, you know, that I think speaks volumes. I agree with you. Uh, that probably doesn't get talked about enough, especially now that he called it a career after 16 seasons. It's almost like Eli had his football career. But simultaneously, alongside the X's and O's of the football career, Paul, there was another career in terms of his charity work and his dedication to other causes that have nothing to do with the Giants or football. It was just something that he took a great deal of passion with. Well, I think you could call him a humanitarian Hall of Famer, to be perfectly frank with you folks, because, again, between the uh, March and Dimes, between the the, uh, Dogs for the Blind and uh, Tackle Kids Cancer, uh, that's, that's, that's a big big nut to to chew on and Eli always found time somehow despite the fact that he prepared it seemed 25 hours a day he always found time to help 201-939-4513 is the telephone number hashtag Giants chat on Twitter let's open up the phone lines as we take you up till the top of the hour Tony is in Jersey City he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live welcome to the program Tony what do you got for us Tony going once. Okay, Tony is a man of apparently very few words this afternoon. Let's try again. How about Susan on Long Island? She joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Welcome aboard, Susan. What do you have for us? Oh, good morning, guys. Hi. Uh, Oh, afternoon now, but um, I can't tell you how wonderful that ceremony was Friday. I still, I mean, I'm still in tears. And kudos to the people to put those videos together, especially the one, uh, I think it was behind the scenes, Oh, my word. And that last scene where they're slowly taking Eli's name off of the holder, I just, that, that totally, I still watch it. I'm still hysterical crying with it. So <laughs> kudos to that, to the organization for showing the respect and the love for Eli that he really deserved, and just not as a player, but just as that wonderful person he is. Um, if you may, there is a little poem that I wrote for Eli that I'd like to to say if that's okay with you guys? Go right ahead. Okay. It's called Finding the Eye in Eli. Woven in team, supportive of all, bearer of blame, disperser of Lord, lion of calm, warrior of ice, passion that's tempered with purpose in sight, 
Blended in victory, scorched in a loss, the heart of a giant remained on its course. Embodied in blue, there for the call, faithful and true, a hero for all. The stance of a warrior falls in the loss. The heart of the warrior beats true but walks off. Epitome of class, a gentleman of honor, always the team, a giant of valor. That's my tribute to Eli. I love him. I don't think there'll ever be another one like him. If you would like Daniel to, to if you would like Excuse to me? to type that up, uh, I and send that to the facility here. I will see what I could do to get it to him if you'd like. Oh, that would be wonderful. Oh yeah. Oh, thank you, Paul. I, yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank, thank t- yeah, you. Yeah. T- type I type it up will. and send it in in care of my name here at the Giants, uh, and okay. and here at the Giants facility. And I will see what I could do to get it to him. Oh, thank you. That's that's so sweet of you. Sure I just thing. really just wanted to pay tribute to him because um, he was, you know, just such a role model, not just for the Giants, but for all athletes. You know, I, I love sports, and that's something that I think that people need to put emphasis on, just not their playing ability, but what the heart of an athlete should be as, as a person and as a sportsman. So, um, you know, I, I love him. and. I, it's like an end, and I can't get over it. I don't think I can get stuff. But um, I'm so glad that we do have someone like Daniel Jones that does um, like Eli, will never be Eli, but is like Eli. And I'm so glad he's going to carry on that, that tribute of being what a true giant really should be. So thank you, guys, and thank you for all that you do and all your support of Eli throughout these years also. Hi, have Susan. a great day. Thank you so much. Very nicely written, Susan. appreciate you sharing that with us and appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for uh, weighing in. I got a chance to talk to David Cutcliffe and his wife on Friday, and I cannot tell you how proud Cutcliffe was, not only of the Manning brothers, but also of Daniel Jones. And he wanted to make sure that I understood. And I said, oh, Coach, I, I already know. He said, you got a really good one in Daniel. This guy is just the salt of the earth. And he said it's not just about him being a football player, but he is as true a, a human being as you're going to want. And uh, I think we've already figured that out. It didn't take long to know that he was cut out of the same cloth as Eli uh, but certainly, you know, Coach Cutcliffe would know better than we because he had been around him for several years, and we've only been around him for one season. But not only did he say what he said, but then Coach Cutcliffe's wife also couldn't stop telling me about how wonderful Daniel Jones is and how proud they are of him, almost like a, a surrogate father, if you will, parents. Well, they spent so much time you around know? him. And, and they can't say enough about Eli and about Peyton and about Daniel. And so, you know, look, they came up, all right? They came up from Duke, or should I say Carolina, for the ceremony on Friday. They're not doing that for anybody. You know, I'm sure that he's had a lot of guys over his college coaching career that have retired. But Eli Manning, no. They came up for Eli, and I thought that was really cool. Well, and they supposedly also brought Daniel with them. Yes. Daniel was back in they that did. area, so they all came on the same plane. And no surprise, given their relationships. Well, we talked about this on Friday, Paul, but I think it's worth once again echoing for multiple times. When you look at the turnout at Friday's ceremony, I think that certainly says a lot about Eli's impact. The former teammates, former coaches that came. You mentioned David Cutcliffe, uh, Ernie Accorsi, Tom Coughlin also coming up 
for the ceremony. You know, there were people from all walks of life that interacted with Eli through his career here with the Giants. And, you know, the fact that they took the time to get there, I think, says a lot. I think if you ask a number of other former players, they wanted to get there. Unfortunately, the announcement came so abruptly that you had some players that were down at the Pro Bowl, uh, other players that had, obviously, previous events. So it was tough in terms of traveling. But once again, the players that were on hand, especially since everybody's not necessarily in the New Jersey area, I, I think that does say a lot about well, and, how and they wanted to come and be present for Eli Manning. People like Victor Cruz, who's working for ESPN at the Pro yeah. Bowl last week, made sure that he had done a short video clip that the Giants were able to include in a presentation they gave to Eli afterwards. Yeah, and that was put up on social media. There were a lot of individuals from across the NFL. I took a glance at it. Drew Brees, Tony Romo. Mm-hmm. And there were even a lot of celebrities that, too, who either are Giants fans or Eli Manning fans that also sent their well wishes. So uh, it was really uh, across the board that uh, weighed in on uh, Eli Manning's retirement. Let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. We check in with Jason in Connecticut, who joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Jason? How are you guys doing? Doing all right, Jason. What's Hi. on your mind? All right, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to uh, um, bring up two points and then ask two questions. Is that possible? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll start with the comments, uh, the two points I wanted to make. Um, I think underrated, uh, I think the hiring of Jason Garrett, I'm like really excited about. I don't think it's getting enough uh, publicity, I guess. Um, and I'm really interested in the hire because I think uh, he's going to really do well for Saquon. Um, I think Jason always had good offenses in Dallas when he was the head coach, as a OC and a head coach. I think he was a integral part of that. I'm kind of interested to see how he's going to use uh, 26, uh, Saquon. Um, instead of last year, I think he was misused a little bit. Uh, a lot of his runs were just up the gut for three, two, three yards. And less. Really effective. <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, here, here's what I would say. I think the uh, conjunction of not only Garrett, but also Mark Colombo coming over as uh, the Cowboys offensive line coach last year, we know how much they love to pound Zeke Elliott and how the Cowboys love to win the trenches. Well, with Colombo and Garrett here, you have to believe that Judge has already talked to those guys about we want to be a power football team. And I think that really, as a combination, should make you excited. Right, okay. And I'll make the other three points as quickly as possible. Um, Number two, I know this isn't Madden. I know this is real life. I'm kind of interested what uh, Patrick Graham was going to do with Lorenzo Carter. Um... I think he has a lot of potential, but I personally think I'm not a coach, of course. Um, but I think he's being misused a little bit. I don't think he's just a pure pass rusher. I think he's been kind of put in that box, but I don't think that's his natural position. Um, I would love to see them kind of play him like in that Anthony Barr role, where he's rushing, dropping in coverage, playing off ball. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, I think part of the problem is that when Lorenzo Cardi came out of Georgia, he had played like three or four different linebacker roles for the Bulldogs. So when he got to the Giants, they saw an incredible athlete who had multi-talents, and they were like, okay, well, let's figure out how to use him. And I think that first year as a rookie, they were still trying to figure out exactly what to do with him. And then last year, you know, they had difficulties on defense because of the inexperience and quite honestly they also need a bolster of some more talent and I think that the scheme 
did not necessarily maximize the players' values. Uh, I don't necessarily think that there were enough adjustments made to get the most out of what those players could offer. I would like to believe, whatever it turns out to be, that they will maximize Carter's talent and ability because I do think he's got a bunch of it. I'm not 100% sure, in my opinion. Again, I don't know what Coach Graham's going to do because we've heard him talk about multiple and, and he's going to come from that Belichick school, which means you might see a different defense every week, yeah. and you're going to see adjustments at halftime. And, I mean, literally, you're going to see four-man line, and the next play going to be a three-man line. Next play is going to be an amoeba line. Next time there's going to be five guys up on the line of scrimmage. He's going to be playing a variety of different things, but they're going to be specific to the opponent as opposed to um, restricted within a particular system. And I think, I think that's going to enhance the value of the Giants' front seven, no matter who is playing the, the snaps. I think. I don't know that, but I think. And that okay. should bode well for Carter Zimenez, who, by the way, has been working out extremely hard in the offseason. Oh, Shane Zimenez. I've said before, one of the things he needed to do to uh, gain uh, uh, more proficiency at this level would be power, and he is really working on the weights to try to add power and strength to excel at this level. Well, the good news for a guy like Zimenez, remember, you know, at this time last year, he's going through the pre-draft process because everybody's mm-hmm. so caught up in workouts, showcasing skill sets to teams. Now, this is his first NFL offseason. Yes. You know, that's big for a player entering his second year. And, you know, the other thing with respect to any defensive player, including Lorenzo Carter, You have to understand, Jason, there's a new defensive coordinator. There's also new positional coaches. There's a completely new outlook and evaluation of everybody on the roster. So whatever was done the previous season, not to say that they're not going to go and look at how these players were utilized, but new coaches bring new philosophies to the table. And that means I think everyone's up for perhaps a reevaluation or a usage in different ways, depending on how this new coaching staff sees fit. But Carter was always a jack-of-all-trades player coming out of Georgia. He was sort of a Swiss Army knife in terms of how they utilized him. Now at the NFL level, it's up to now Patrick Graham and the coaching staff to sort of hone in on the skill set and utilize him in a way that he could tap into his main strength as opposed to perhaps go crazy in a variety of different directions. I'd just like to stick him at the strong side, and if the Giants are going to go 4-3, just stick him at the strong side and let him just hold down that particular area of the field. I think he could do it. Well, and that goes back to my point about let him focus on one strength as opposed to a variety of different areas. Not to say that you can't utilize him in different spots, but I think considering he's still a very young player coming into his own, it may help him to say, hey, this is what we envision utilizing you on the edge. This is what what you want to do game to game, and this is what you should focus on. But once again, it depends on Patrick Graham and the coaching staff, and specifically the linebacking coaches, how they you know train him and what they see fit for him. Right, right. Okay, cool. And I'll ask two more questions and. uh I'll take it off the air. I appreciate you guys taking my call. Um, first is, um, do you guys know how much uh, cap space we'll have uh, in the off season? I know it's fluctuating from things I'm reading. Without yeah. it, pretty healthy for cap space. There's no answer for that really because you don't know how many contracts will be restructured or adjusted or extended. Th- that that's a fluid situation. So to be honest, I really hesitate to even discuss it. Other than to say, the Giants will clearly have enough money 
to make a couple of big moves if they want to. And okay. and that's about the only thing I can say because, you know, in a lot of cases, even if you kind of run a little short, you could always make an adjustment with somebody if you really want to. You know, that's a okay. kind of a credit card situation. You hate to do it, but you could if you really had to. Suffice it to say that if the Giants want two big-ticket players, they will have enough money to get them. I would describe it as a relatively healthy cap situation, I think, entering this offseason. They're in the upper level of the league. All right, good. And uh, last one, just I think I just want to – it's nostalgic. It was great to see the um, press conference with Eli retiring and see all the former players like Brandon, who's actually been one of my top three players um, for the Giants, underrated uh, player, Um, and Eli and all the guys, Plaxico seeing them, which is really good to see. I wanted to know, what do you guys think? You guys have been around the Giants for a few years. And one of my favorite players um, was Keith the Hammer Hamilton, um, very underrated defensive tackle. Yeah. And what do you think his chances of getting into the ring of honor? And uh, I'll take it off the air. Thank you. All right, Jason. Appreciate the phone call. Wow. I don't know about getting into the ring of honor, although he really was a true blue giant. Uh, played for about a decade. Uh, never went uh, to another team was a career, lifelong giant. I thought, to be honest with you, he could have probably gone to two or three Pro Bowls. He was that good of a player. But we all know the Pro Bowl has a level of uh, popularity involved in the voting. And consequently, uh, he got overlooked. But you'll recall he was part of the 2000 team that won the NFC Championship and went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Ravens. Uh, You know... Here's what I will say. I think Keith Hamilton is truly... He was an all-pro that year, by the way, in 2000. Well, yeah, but they didn't they didn't give him a trip to the Pro Bowl. No, I know. I'm just saying he was an all-pro selection, though. Yeah, which so, is to some... Yeah. And I and I understand that that actually, on and, and some levels, is better because the Pro Bowl, as we all know, is watered down and it's a fan vote and everything else. Uh, Hammer, Hammer was legitimately... When he came to the Giants out of Pittsburgh, he was a defensive end. And he started out that way under Dan Reeves. Uh, I want to say ninety-five. You got you got his you got his rookie year. Well, ninety-two is his rookie. Ninety-two, ninety-two. Yeah. Okay, started out as a defensive end, and I, he had double-digit sacks one year. I think he had multiple years. Okay, double no, digit sacks. as a defensive end, he started out. He defensive, had eleven, sacks eleven and one a year? half in ninety-three. Okay, there yes. you go. But he also had a ten-sack season in two thousand as a defensive tackle. Of well, course. and then yeah. that's what happened. They moved mm-hmm. him inside. And he was just, wow. I mean, talk about holding the point of attack. He could fight double teams, uh, hold the point of attack, and he could slice and get after the quarterback. I thought Keith Hamilton is one of the most underrated giants of my 37 years covering this team. I don't mind telling you that. I think he was. I think he should have gone to two or three Pro Bowls. I really believe that. And so, Ring of Honor, though, you know, a lot of times... That also involves guys who win championships. And unfortunately, he he didn't get the ring when they went to that Super Bowl. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't argue against it. If somebody said to me, you know, you got a problem putting him in, I'd say, no, I don't. I I would not argue against it. Hammer was a special breed, man. And let me tell you, he had some junkyard dog in him, too. He was a tough, tough guy. Well, a durable guy, too, by the way. Oh, no question. You look at... The number of seasons he played, 15, 16 games, numerous seasons. Well, all you need to do is mention the words Keith Hamilton to Jesse Armstead or Michael Barrow. 
who were the two stars on that defense playing linebacker behind Hammer. And they will tell you how much he did to clog up guys on the line so that those guys could be free and make the play. Jesse and Michael, they considered Keith Hamilton like their escort because he would do everything he could to get rid of all the interference in front of him and just let those guys run free. And Barrow and Armstead, man, they could play in space. Both of those guys could really wreck you as defensive superstars. Well, that's what any linebacker wants to hear. That's you what want they want to hear. defensive linemen that clean that's things what they up want for to hear. you. And so. Hammer never was selfish either, man. He was always going to do anything for the cause. Never cared, never tooted his own horn, never, never cried about anything. He just did all the dirty work, and he scrapped. Tough guy. Well, that's what you need to have in terms of your identity in the trenches. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines. Don is in Texas, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Don? Hey, Lance. AP, Don. How you Hi. guys doing? You're right, Don. What's on your mind? I want, I want to add another game that you guys were talking about of Eli Manning, and then I want to end it with a comment and a question. P-Dot, when I called you yesterday, I had mentioned the Cowboy game, and in 2011 when they came in here and they took care of business and Jason Pierre-Paul blocked the field goal. There's another game that I want to throw out there that – really shows me Eli Manning. It was the, Remember, the, the, the black field was, was in Dallas. Dallas. Yeah, it was, was at Jerry Jones' stadium. Yeah, that, that was not here. That was in Dallas. That was Correct. earlier in the regular season. Correct. That's right. That's yeah. right. I was talking a regular season with PDOT yesterday, and another regular season game that came out to me was that really, really just up till today is the Robert Griffin the third game when they played, and there was like 40 seconds. Robert Griffin just scored a touchdown. We were behind, and then there was only like 40 seconds or so left. Eli Manning throws a fly pattern to Victor Cruz to end the game. Boy, that game, I don't know if you guys remember that one. That was one that just like, I can't believe what I just saw there. That is the, the ice cold of Eli in that. The other thing I want to talk about comment-wise, I really like how this coaching staff is coming together. I really like what they're doing, getting a lot of veteran coach, ex-coaches. When you bring in guys with experience and guys with something to prove, you've got to like that. I really like what they're doing with the coaching staff. And I have one question. P-Dot, a couple years ago, I called you when the year before Barkley got drafted. It was you and John, I believe. I had mentioned, would you rather have Quentin Nelson and Sony Michelle, or would you rather have Barkley and Hernandez? Ironically, that's how that turned out. This year, would you rather have a stud defensive player or a stud offensive player in the first pick of this first round? I'll take your answer off the air, guys. All right, Don. Thanks for the phone call. Well, based on the available talent that's going to be in this draft, I think we all pretty much understand that there's going to be a premier offensive tackle available at four who should hold proper value. There, in all honesty, could be a premier defensive impact player at four who should hold appropriate value. And beyond that, I don't know that there is another position outside of the front seven or the corner. Akuda is the only corner, I think, that you would consider it for. I think Simmons is the only linebacker you would consider it for. I think Young is the only defensive end you would consider at four. And then I think at four, you probably got a couple of tackles who would have appropriate value. So that's where I stand right now. I don't know which one or which two of those people might be available at four. If they get any one of those guys, I'm good. Well, I think when you're at four, you're in an interesting position because, to your point, you don't know what's going to happen in the top three picks. There could be room for trades, but I think that there's going to be at least some choices 
where you can either go in the offensive side of the ball or the defensive side of the ball. And you, know, you could argue right now just in terms of a need basis. And remember, we haven't had free agency yet. So you know this conversation is extremely premature. No question. It's better to answer this and have this conversation in terms of what would you rather have once you get through free agency because I think that changes somewhat of the outlook of the team on paper. But if we are going to have that conversation, right now you can make the argument the Giants could use a playmaker on both sides, Paul. I don't think it's a stretch. Correct. Would you say that defense is more of a priority than offense? Yes, I would say defense is more of a priority given the struggles on the defensive side of the ball. The unknown with Marcus Golden heading into free agency, who was clearly the biggest playmaker on that side of the ball. Mm-hmm. You lose him, you know, then you really don't have plan B currently on the roster. So you know, all of my arrows would be pointing towards defense right now for any individual that would pose a similar question. But once again, depending on what happens in free agency, that doesn't mean I'm going to be singing that tune. But right now, to me, I think if you were to ask me offense versus defense, I think there's more of a necessity to find the defensive playmaker, regardless of whether it's trenches, middle of the defense, back end. That, to me, should be the top priority. Yeah, at this point, and I reserve the right to change my mind, I think they're probably going to go offensive tackle at four. And they're going to wind up going free agency to grab a defensive yeah, player. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. That's that. That's the way I stand right now. But again, I reserve the right to change my mind. I, I love when people come back on Twitter and they say, "Well, you said this." Yeah. Well, when did I say that? Because you do have the right to change your mind as circumstances get altered or as you learn more information. Right now, as we stand here at the end of January. I'm thinking pick number four is going to be an offensive tackle, and uh, free agency is going to help address some of the other needs. But again, I reserve the right to change my mind, and I would not at all be disappointed if they took a defensive impact guy at four either. Well, Remmers is a free agent, so right now there is a question mark at the right tackle position. There's no doubt about it. You could make the claim Nick Gates is an option, and I don't think that's a stretch at all, but... There's also nothing wrong with adding competition and adding youth onto the roster. So right tackle and addressing that in some capacity at four makes sense just based on need, just like you can make an argument for the defensive side of the ball too. There's needs in terms of the pass rush. There's needs at linebacker. I think that they have a nice mixture of youth at the corner position, but that doesn't mean, again— The coaching staff is new, Paul, and I can't emphasize this enough, and I don't care if I'm going to sound like a broken record. The way one coaching staff views a player could be completely different, Mm -hmm. Paul, than how a new coaching staff and those positional coaches look at it. So you can never go into an offseason saying, oh, well, you know, they drafted three or four corners over the last two seasons, so they're fine. Well, how do you know that Joe Judge and his staff, when they spoke to Dave Gettleman, did not necessarily give glowing reviews of that personnel. Hey, in today's game, you need four corners anyway. Of course. Well, depth <laughs> okay. you always need. I, I'm yeah. not going to... No, but, but what I'm saying is even the guys that you may have had penciled in as your starters, who's to say that the coaching staff oh, has I know. fallen in love with no, those guys? I think that's very fair. So, and, by, and by the way, I would also not object to trading down two or three spots. I Let think, me make that clear as well. Yeah. Well, also, by the way, speaking of speculation around this time of the year, Jay Glazer of Fox Sports is reporting that the Chargers and Phillip Rivers are moving on. So the Chargers are right behind the Giants, and if they want to make a move for a quarterback, maybe they look to move up, or maybe they're content with where they are because they say to themselves, Giants don't need a quarterback, and if they hold on to that pick, they don't need to be aggressive. The point is, a lot is going to happen between now and the draft. 
There's going to be teams that may all of a sudden develop needs because of injuries that happen in OTAs. That's the nature of the beast, Paul. We never wish for anybody to go down, but how many times have we seen the non-contact injury that happens in OTAs? Oh, and my goodness. All of a sudden, that changes Too the many. draft plans. Yeah, and how many times also do we sometimes see a team that you never anticipated making a move for a quarterback or well, another position throw a curveball? I think if people had to make a bet right now, I don't know if it's been announced yet, but it looks like the Bucks are moving on from Winston, aren't they? I don't know if there's been any definitive indication. He is a free agent, but... The needle seems to be that way. Well, you could I don't know that they've decided it or they've said anything about it, but it looks like the needle's moving in that direction. I don't think the team has given a definitive direction one way or the other, but... But that would, I would be another team you, in the vicinity. Well, there's absolutely a team with a question mark, if that's how you want to word it, Paul. I, I wouldn't go so far to say Bruce Arians or Jason Light, their general manager, has come out and said... We don't know where we're going, or we're absolutely not bringing back Winston. Well, they don't want to, I don't think, because strategically, why should you? No, and you shouldn't give any inkling of what you're going to do. But if you just go based on this past season and the M.O. for Jameis Winston during his career, I mean, he is coming off a season in which it was a 30 for 30. And I'm not talking about the documentary. I'm talking about <laughs> 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. And, and that's not easy to pull off. So you know, that is a team that's definitely exploring its options. I think it's safe to say. And one of the options is bringing back Winston, who they drafted. The other option is, of course, going in a different direction. Let's head back to the phone lines. We got Len in Columbia, Maryland. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Len? Hi, Len. Hey, guys. How we doing? I'm, I'm Good, good, good. I'm kind of at a loss for words. I, I was going to speak on the same subject that spoke on earlier in the show. I'm just going to let her call stand. That was well done. It was very well put, done. Put that one put that one in the Hall of Fame. And I hope she calls back someday. Let me just try to add two things, just a couple of remembrances here. You know, I'm 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 kind of stuck on an interview that Eli did the day after Eric Flowers was cut. And somebody stuck a microphone in his face and asked him about Eric Flowers. And Eli's response was, it's always tough to lose a good teammate. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how many people have crushed flowers? <laughs> I mean, in, in, in every venue that you could think of. And, and Eli said something positive about the guy. And it made me think about, and I know Paul and, and uh, Feeks have talked about this before. He, he must have been a great teammate. You know, and, and if you're going to tell a kid going into youth sports one thing on their first venture into the game at seven, eight years old, whatever it is, any game, you just tell them to be a good teammate. And I, I, I can't imagine anybody being a better teammate than, than uh, uh, Eli. I've never um, seen one better, Lynn. I'm telling you that right now. As someone who's been around here a long time on a daily basis, I have never seen anybody who would define the word teammate better than Eli Manning. Well, and as far as his comments about Eric Flowers, remember, Eli never gave the media any substance to then start a narrative. He would never throw a teammate under the bus. So, you know, I wouldn't read yeah. too much into it, I guess is what I'm saying. No, Not to yeah. say that he wasn't truthful well, was what he point. was saying. Yeah, well, that, yeah. And, that's that's what and that's what I'm laying out. I'm saying that he never gave the media something to interpret or twist and turn and take it in a variety of different directions because... Yeah. Even when a teammate left, whether that guy was good or bad or indifferent in the locker room, his yeah. tone would be the same. 
So, you know, that's yeah. what was very, to me, impressive about Eli Manning. No matter the circumstance, no matter the controversy, no matter the drama, it was always even keel for Eli Manning. Well, it, it, and it, in that particular interview, to me, it was, you know, it was, it was bottom line. He left the interviewer nowhere to go. Yeah. I mean, the person was silenced by his response. It just, just I, I thought to myself, a terrific response. Because the one thing I, I always admired about Flowers, the guy tried. He tried to play. I mean, he played hurt. He tried to play, showed up every week. And, all right, he couldn't cut it. But, uh, you, you know, the guy, he, he was prob- probably was a good teammate. Hey, one other thing, you know, uh, uh, Paul, you, um, you spoke of this uh, yesterday. I was, by the way, I was listening to the show yesterday after I had gotten a tooth pulled. And oh, uh, you, you, you got me through. You got me through the tooth pull pretty good. Um, Thank you. But you, 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 um, you, you commented on something that John Mara said, where uh, regarding the Ring of Honor, and he said we told Eli he was going in, but we told him he would get to choose when he wanted to do it. And, and you know, I've always thought you don't you don't tell icons what they're going to do. You ask icons what they want to do. And I, I, I thought Mr. Mara did a good job with that. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of pleased that the whole thing is over. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to miss him terribly. I'm going to miss seeing number 10 out on the field. Uh, just a great giant. But, um, you know, it's, we're, we're going to move on now. And um, it's a new era. And we're, hopefully we're going to play some good football we're moving toward the playoffs and just thank him for everything he did for us. Hey, thanks for taking my All right, call, guys. Thanks, thanks for the phone call. Appreciate it. Really not much to add on that one. No. I think that, uh, you know, lends uh, kudos to the woman, I guess her name was Susan, Correct. who wrote the Eli Manning poem, certainly was warranted because that was a marvelous job. Let's head back to the phone lines. Doug is in Rochester. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Welcome aboard, Doug. What do you got? Hey, guys. Hey, fellas. How you doing? Hi, All right, Doug. Right. Um, I'm, I'm just going to suppose Marcus goes, Marcus goes and get um, you know, he gets the Giants bring him back, and you're talking about the Giants going to a four-three. Paul, will he, will he have to step up on the line? He has to put his hand in the dirt, right? He wouldn't be uh, standing up as a linebacker. He, he would have to get up on the line, right? No, no. If the Giants go four-three, what you can do with Marcus Golden is, if you're going to put him in in a in a showing of a blitz situation. You could just stand him up and have four down and then him standing up as the five-man front if you'd like. And the thing about Marcus Golden, let me just say something else. Do you know that this year, and I mean this because he's a very underrated player, I know he only had, the, the you know, what, 10 and a half is what they finally gave him credit for. Is that I right, Lance? So. Let me 10 and a half sacks? Yeah, that sounds about Did right. Did you know that of all the players who had a minimum of 10 sacks this year, Marcus Golden had the most tackles in the NFL. He had 70 tackles. Ten, just 10 they gave him. They gave him officially credit for 10? Yeah. Yeah. For all the double-digit sack artists this year in the league, Marcus Golden had the most combined tackles in the NFL. Think about that. Think about that for a second. Yeah, well, he was extremely active. Relentless is probably the best way to describe it. 72 tackles from a weak side linebacker. That's a big number. Marcus Golden has a motor, man. He yeah. gets after it sideline yeah. to sideline. He is not a one-dimensional pass rusher. Marcus Golden is a good player. 
Okay, so so the, I'm gonna go to the draft, the fourth pick. So the Simmons kid out of Clemson, um, it, um, Carter playing linebacker. Is, is there any way they both can be on the field at the same time or not? Yeah, well, Simmons is a versatile player. I mean, sure. they put him in the slot, Clemson. So nobody says you got to keep Simmons in one position. Just like Paul said, nobody says you got to keep Golden in one position. So, yeah, they can absolutely be on the field simultaneously. And I do think that Simmons could play inside linebacker or middle linebacker if it is going to be a 4-3. Or, again, if it's in a sub package, there's no question in my mind that he could be on the field in the front seven. Okay, then I'm going to the free agency uh, pass rusher. Now, um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers can put a t- uh, tag on Shaq Bear, right? Correct. They can put a tag. Okay, so if the Giants are really interested in Shaq Bear, they would go. They would talk to the Buccaneers, and they probably would have to give up some round picks and some stat amount of money for the Bucks to hand them over, right? Yeah, I mean, you certainly have to work out a deal if that's the case. Or, you know, unless they rescind the tag, which we've seen at times, and then he becomes a free agent. But unless that happens, yeah, you'd absolutely have to give up assets in order to acquire him. And, and okay, ch- check on Barrett's ahead. numbers. Oh, ahead, I was going to say, check on Barrett's numbers. I'd be surprised if he had more than 50 tackles during the course of this season. He, in fact, it's maybe even less. He is, to me, a smallish tweener who sells out and just goes after the sack. I don't see him as a much of a complete player like Marcus Golden. He had what was 58 tackles. It was 58. Yeah, it was 58. that many? Yeah, he had 58. I, I, then I, yeah. I tip my cap, and that's a better and number. 19 and a half sacks, by the way. I, I saw, I when, when I watched him, I watched him in a number of games, but especially the Giants game, he looked like he was just selling out to get to the quarterback. And I didn't see as much of a two-way player as I would like to see from, from a guy of that nature. And to be honest with you, if the Giants really believe that O'Shane Zimenez is going to be a situational edge rusher and can develop into something really special, well, then, you know, adding Shaq Barrett and Golden and Zimenez to the mix, those guys, are, you can't play three edge rushers really with only two spots, you know, on the edges. So yeah, that doesn't but, necessarily uh, help. Zimenez the second year. You think well, he may not be ready, but it's a, it's quite a few um, edge rushers on free agency market this year. It's quite well, a few. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's usually always edge rushers on the market. It's just a matter of is their team going to give them the tag, which you just mentioned, or are they going to demand a lot of money? And time will tell, especially if Shaq Barrett is tagged. And Shaq Barrett, from a statistical standpoint, is one of the best guys expected to head to the market. Uh, Yannick Ngakwe of the Jacksonville Jaguars is another name that comes right. to yeah. mind. So, you know, yeah, it's, well, it's not as if my, – my point is, Doug, it's not yeah. as if elite pass rushers hit the market. The reason being is because when teams realize they're an elite pass rusher, they do a good job locking them up to make sure they don't get there. So it's very difficult to get a guy on the open market who is an elite pass rusher because it's very few that actually get that opportunity to test the market. And if you can get them, the cost is prohibitive. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, so that's what I was talking about, the cost. Is that like, you know, uh, Jacksonville, he only had like about nine sacks, but he'd be, you know, less expensive than a bear, right? Because his sack total was like, fell off dramatically towards bear, right? 
Well, Barrett had nearly yeah. 20 sacks, yeah. so th there's yeah. no doubt about it that there was a disparity between the production of both of those players, and Ngakwe had demanded money even before the season started last year sure. with Jacksonville, so I think it's well documented the guy wants to get paid. It doesn't mean that he's going to come cheap, but he, I think, is absolutely looking to test the market. I'd be very surprised if the Jaguars gave him the tag considering some other issues that they need to address with their team. But once again, it depends on is he a fit for what the Giants have in mind and is there going to be other teams that are going to competing for his services? So there's uh, a lot of unknown right now. Well, can I leave you with this question? Um, what do you think the Giants going to do in the offseason about that pass rusher? you think they're going to look for one or, you know, like the one that's not going to cost too much or is going to be productive? I'll leave you with that. Thanks, fellas. All right, Doug. Thanks for the phone call. Well, simply put, you got to figure out what you're going to do to try to retain Marcus Golden. If, if, in fact, you want to, I would think they do, but the new coaching staff has to figure out how he would fit into their plans, and then you got to you know, look at the numbers and figure out how much can you pay him, how much does he want. Then you got to figure out what you're going to do with Leonard Williams because Leonard Williams yeah, is part of that player. front seven. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now he is a free agent, so you got to figure out how much money you're going to give him. And then after that, okay, now you look outside the building. But you always look inside the building first and figure out what you want to do with your own guys, usually before you start talking about people outside. Well, I think that's a great point about Leonard Williams. Remember, we talk about cap space, and this goes back to a conversation you and I had earlier today, Paul. All of a sudden, you start using that money to retain your own guys. Now the pot is a little bit smaller. Sure and is. you don't have as much money to go out on a spending spree elsewhere. And uh, John Mara was even asked about this in passing during the head coaching search. And I think he was asked, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the exact quote, but he even said he'd be surprised if they go on a huge spending spree right. in the offseason because of, of course, what happened in 2016. I'd be stunned if it's a duplication of that. I think that golden is a conversation you have to have. Leonard Williams, to your point, Paul, is a conversation you have to have. And the conversations of those two has to be in comparison to what else is out there. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if we don't re-sign them, are we getting an upgrade if we go after another player? And what is that going to cost us in comparison to trying to have an inner edge on re-signing them? Because remember, you get a few-day head start on the players that are currently on your roster. So they'll have some ability to sit down with Golden and Williams reps and talk shop before everybody else gets a hand on them. So how does that perhaps change what's going to lay out in the market? In 16, the big signings were Snacks Harrison, Janoris Jenkins, and Olivier Vernon. Yeah. With the Giants potentially re-signing Williams and Golden, to me, there may only be room for two big-ticket items coming in from the outside. I, I don't see more than two. I think two are possible. If they see guys they really want and they can wiggle the numbers a bit, I think they could get two big-ticket items. I don't think it's going to be more than two. Let's head back to the phone line. Scott is in New Mexico. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Hi. Doing right, Scott. What's on your mind? Uh, I had a question for you. You had a couple of guys posted on the Giants website. Makai Becton, who Daniel Jeremiah was very high on, and then from Louisville, Bradley, yeah, and then Bradley Anai, is it, uh, who was in the Senior Bowl and I guess uh, was uh, played very well there. With the Giants' assembly of coaches, they have a lot of teachers on this on this coaching staff. So I was just wondering, from a, a sort of a point of view, do the Giants want to take? 
project players, or are they looking for in, in the draft? In other words, in the college draft, or are, or do they want to get players now that are pro ready, sort of like a Quentin Nelson? Because I know there's a lot involved in in you know uh, combines and the interviews and their own private workouts, etc. But I was just curious. Uh, just to give you an example, when I looked at uh, Bradley and I, uh, I looked at two games he was in Washington and BYU that Utah played against, and he wasn't as good as he was in the Senior Bowl. So I know there's a lot, and it's complicated in the evaluation process. I get it, but the Giants appear to want to win now, and I'm wondering if they're going to take the tack now to get more pro-ready players. Uh, you had mentioned O'Shane Zimenez, who I thought when he was drafted was a project player, and he's turned out to be very good. So I was wondering from a philosophical point of view what the coaching staff, since they have a lot of teachers now on this coaching staff, at least uh, assume, I'm assuming that to be the case, where do you think the philosophy lies? Uh, do they want to get plug-in players, in other words, that can start immediately, or are, or are they still going to go for the project player? And I was just curious what you, you both of you thought of that. Well, first of all, I, I think when you draft a player with the fourth overall pick, project is not necessarily the first term that comes to mind. That'd be the last term right. that yes. comes no, to so, mind. I'm not talking about for the, for the fourth round pick. I'm talking basically the picks that come after that. Well, I mean, to me, the term that I utilize, I utilize upside. I, I think when you evaluate any pick when you're picking outside of the first round, they could be an unfinished product, if that's what I think you're alluding to, Scott. Right. First of all, it's always an inexact science. So, you know, you can look at the guy on film that you just talked about and say, well, he didn't look as good in the regular season as he did in the senior bowl. But right. when the coaches are evaluating the film, there may be things that jump out to them about that player and say, hey, you know, if once we get him in the facility, these are the things we would focus on. These would the things we'd emphasize. And yeah, he may not go out and get 100 tackles year one, but by the time we get one season under his belt with us, we think by year two he could really come into his own so that okay. would be to me a player with upside I don't know if they would necessarily label it a player who's a project I don't think anybody who you pick outside of the first round is far from a lock so I don't really think the philosophy for the Giants is changing just because they have new coaches now in-house well, I guess I that's how I would answer I that. think my answer would be this the rule of thumb is that you want guys who you pick in the first three rounds to give you some sense of immediate impact, even if it's on a rotational basis. Right. That's always been the rule of thumb. And Dave Gettleman's old school, so I would assume he's going to maintain that same philosophy. The other thing that I would say is that the Giants, in the latter stages of Jerry Reese's career, took a lot of athletes who were then projects and projections, and it didn't work out so well. And John Mara himself said, right. we've got to take fewer risks. Yeah. So in my mind, I do believe as you look at Dave Gettleman's first two drafts with the Giants, and they've gotten some production out of these first two drafts. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, look at Darius Slayton, what he did as a fifth-round pick. Okay, right. it, I don't know if they had thought Slayton could give them something right away when they took him in the fifth round or if they thought he was going to be a project down the road. It turned out he was an immediate impact player. I have to believe the Giants are not going to reach as far as they did some years ago, that Gettleman will continue to try to get guys who are going to give him help quicker. But that's just a guess based on, on, on the theories and the, the old-school mentalities that Dave Gettleman has exhibited. I don't see why they would suddenly start reaching. Yeah, rolling for, for, the dice. Rolling the dice like on that. risks and projects all of a sudden now because they have a new coaching staff. I, I can't see that happening. That did not work under the Reese administration. Right.
Yeah, and one more point, and I'll, I'll take it off the air. In regards to Mackay Becton, I, I know he's a huge individual. Oh, he's he a is. mammoth yes, man. Yes, he is indeed. And Daniel Jeremiah, who right, I think was the first analyst who predicted that the Giants were going to take Daniel Jones. He was. Uh, so I, I, he carries a lot more um, weight in my mind in regards to knowing what he's talking about. So, and just briefly, all the film I could look at him, he just looks like he's overpowering in regards to just knocking people down. But as a, is he the kind of plug-and-play player that can step in immediately and um, sort of have an impact on the Giants' offensive line? And I'll take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks. All right. Thanks for the uh, phone call, Scott. Appreciate it. I won't get into detailed study until we get uh, closer to the combine, and then after that I'm going to go hog-wild nuts. But to this point, I don't know enough about him and have not looked at nearly enough of tape to tell you what I think about him. And besides, it doesn't matter. That's what Dave Gettleman thinks about well, him course. anyway. Well, but he's a huge, huge man. He's 6'7", so that alone. And he's and like 350, near 370, right? actually. I've seen uh, him listed at 369. That might be a little high. I'm not saying that that's 100% accurate. All I'm saying is there's been breakdowns of him 6'7", And I don't think they would want him to play at 370. No, something no tells me that I think they want him to have a little bit more mobility uh, with respect to that frame. Sculpt his body a little yes. bit. He's played both tackle positions, so you know that I think is encouraging. You like to see a guy that's been exposed to different points. And you know, as far as Louisville's offense is concerned, you know they ran the ball for 200 yards in eight of their 12 games this season. Now that is a reflection of an entire offensive line. It's not a reflection of one player. I only bring that up just from a factual statistical standpoint. Whenever you're evaluating offensive linemen, team statistics don't necessarily tell the whole story. I think it's important to see that the offense was productive, but how the guy handles his own business on an island is far more important than what the other four guys did in conjunction with him. But to me, when you ask about Becton, I think of presence because of his size. And you would think somebody with that size, okay, should be able to make an impact in year one unless he's going up against... Six nine and seven footers on the opposite end <laughs> on a down to down basis, which I don't see happening. Here's what I will tell you: when I get into my detailed study on him, I do have a connection who has watched him very closely for his entire college career. Once I look at the tape and I see what I need to see, I'm going to give my opinion to that guy, and I'm going to say, "All right, now you tell me if I see it right or if I see it wrong, and what do you know about him? I will get a very good, detailed, and and accurate scouting report on him, but that's going to be for some time down the road. The one other thing that I do want to add, just as a side note to Becton, Scott Satterfield, who just took over as Louisville's head coach, he did a great job turning around Appalachian State and Mm -hmm. continuing their success, and he did a really good job with Louisville in his first year, and they had a lot of issues across the board, both on defense and offense. So he's been exposed to some pretty good coaching, in his final year at the school. So that, to me, is something that you would think the Giants would look into and get the opinion of Satterfield if they were considering him at number four. All right, let's head to the phone lines and squeeze in one more. I don't know why, but we'll at least try to. Charlie is in Portland, Maine. Charlie, welcome aboard. Charlie, real fast. We're running out of time. Go ahead. Okay, real fast. Um, The the, uh, Susie that called inspired me to write my poem for Eli. Oh, goodness gracious. All right, go, Charlie. We only have a minute. Go ahead. So yep. 30 seconds. Roses are red. Oh, Eli is blue. Why did we let him do this? I hope he likes lobsters because I'm sending him two. <laughs> Boy, I mean, <laughs> I, that that's going to go it, up it there really, with uh, the graded pe- great pieces of literature that we've been exposed to. Why as did a we nation. take this call? Well, 
Paul, it's always against our better judgment. You, so you can send it along. Oh, my Thank goodness. Thank you so much. Be good, Charlie. He <laughs> okay. held on just for that. Yeah, make sure you send it to Paul. Absolutely. He, he'd be more than happy to uh, FedEx that and UPS that to uh, Eli Manning's house. Okay. I think it's time to say goodbye. It's amazing how Charlie can always send the show off on a very high note. He just has that talent in him. I don't know. He just sent, oh tends boy. to bring out the best in all of us. Big Blue Kickoff Live brought to you by Cora's Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Be up and running again tomorrow at noon Eastern. Appreciate everybody for tuning in as we continue to break down the ins and outs of the Giants all week long. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.